morning, everybody. I would like to welcome those in Washington and Robinson. I trust that Megan and Alan led you guys well in worship, and we're so glad to be together as we continue our sermon series, 40 Days to Eternity. Now, if you were with us last week, hopefully you brought back your, your booklet, which contains all of our sermon notes. If you are here for the first time this week in the series and you didn't get one, they're back here in the, uh, the campuses on the uh, Bible sh- uh, where the Bibles are, and I'm sure that they would hand those to you at the campuses if you need those as well. And um, basically, this sermon series, we're focused on the post-resurrection appearances of, of Jesus, right? And we're looking at these events, these appearances, um, to, to see what God is teaching us through them. We know that Jesus did not just come back to say, I told you so. He came back with, with a purpose, to, to, to really to speak into the lives of the disciples so that they would lead, lead a, a life that was full of passion, full of conviction, because they were going to be the ones that were going to carry Jesus' earthly ministry forward after he was resurrected into heaven. And that's where we're going to continue. We're going to look at his seventh post-resurrection appearance this morning. But before we do that, let's, let's pause Calm our hearts and ask God to lead us as we look into his word. Father, we do thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for the way that you care for us. And we thank you that you have left us your word, the guide for all life and all living. Father, we just ask you to work on our hearts this morning. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the last time that we were together, if you open up your books or put the timeline up on the screen, is we looked at Jesus' fourth post-resurrection appearance. This is where he came and intercepted the lives of two of his followers walking on the road from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. They had just experienced the, 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 the trials of this weekend, saw what happened to Jesus, and had this... Um, the debate, this discussion about what went on and why did Jesus have to suffer? Jesus shows up as a stranger to walk along this path with them, if you will, and we saw that as they walked, Jesus continued to um, reveal himself to them on along this literal journey of seven miles. And we made some observations that this literal journey that they were on kind of outlines for us the spiritual journey that we are on with Jesus. And we identified five key takeaways on our time together. First, we noticed is, is, is Jesus walked along with them that whether we recognize it or not, Jesus walks with us in all circumstances in our life. Right? Sometimes we don't like what's going on. Right? We had different plans for ourselves, but Jesus is right there in it with us. The second key thing that we recognize is that as Jesus walks with us, that he convicts us of our unbelief and our lack of faith at times, right? That's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And as Jesus did with these two followers of his, Cleopas and his companion, when they doubted and in his conversation, Jesus took them back to his word, showed them why he had to suffer. And that's where we find Hope, real hope, and our faith gets strengthened is through his word. 
And then after doing that, Jesus sat down in fellowship and, and had a meal with these two. And it was in this intimacy, this fellowship, and over a meal that Jesus revealed who he was to them after appearing as a stranger. And so that we notice that when we are in intimacy with Jesus, this is the fourth point, is that when we're in prayer, when we sit silent, when we study his word as, as believers, that Jesus reveals more and more about himself to us, about how faithful he is, how constant he is in our life, and how we can rely on him. And then lastly, we saw the fifth point was Jesus compels us to share. Okay, so we saw here, right, and we get so excited, it should be so hard, that scripture said that their hearts burned, right, that, that in our excitement and what Jesus is doing in our lives, that we shouldn't feel compelled to share what he's doing in our lives. Uh, with unbelievers, with fellow believers, how he's walked through trials with you, but, but that's what she compels us to do. And we saw at the end of our time together that these two were so excited that they went the seven miles back from Emmaus all the way back to Jerusalem, it says, in the, in the middle of the night, at the end of day. And so he, they all go back, and this is where we will see Jesus' fifth appearance, the last appearance of Resurrection Day. So these disciples, there's 10 of them together. Thomas is not with them. We don't know why. But they're meeting together in the upper room in Jerusalem. And they are sitting there talking about what just happened. These two are telling them, guys, we saw Jesus. He's alive. It's real. He's back. And as they're discussing this, guess who shows up uninvited? Jesus does. He pops into the meeting, right? Scripture says that they are startled. So clearly in this instance, they recognize him and then Jesus starts to interact with them. He now tells what he told the two followers, Cleopas and his companion, he tells them, the 10 disciples, this is why I had to suffer. He takes them back to his word. He sits down. He shares an intimate meal and has fellowship with them. So now we've got 10 of the 11 disciples now see that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. They've seen him with their own eyes. Now, a couple days later, we don't know how long, so somewhere on this timeline between that appearance, which is the last of Resurrection Sunday, and this next one, somewhere in that gap, all 11 disciples are together. You can read about this in John chapter 20, verses 26 to 29. They're all together, and the 10 are trying to convince Thomas that Jesus indeed was alive. And Thomas isn't buying this, right? This is where the term doubting Thomas comes from. Thomas is saying, I want to see the, 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 the holes put my finger in them myself. I want to put my finger in his side. And Thomas isn't buying what they're telling him. Well, did you ever hear the saying, what, what, you, what's what you asked for, you just might get it? Yeah. Well, that is exactly what happens. So in his this appearance here, eight days after, Jesus comes to the 11 when they're all assembled 
And Jesus interacts now with all 11 of them together, and he speaks directly to Thomas. He says, go ahead, Thomas. Put your finger in where the nails were. Go ahead, Thomas. Stick your finger into my side. And how does Thomas respond? He professes faith. Right? He professes belief that it is indeed Jesus risen from the dead. So now at this point, all 11 disciples have seen the post-resurrected Jesus. Right, The resurrected Jesus, they see him, his own eyes touched him, interacted with him, had a meal with him, had fellowship with him. So some days later, we don't know how long, we see this recorded in Matthew Chapter 28, the disciples, all 11 of them, are told to leave Jerusalem and go to Galilee. See that, Matthew 28.10. In Matthew 28.16, it says they followed, they listened, and then it says, which is important, they left to go to Galilee to go to the mountain to which Jesus told them to go. So not only were they told to go to this mountain, right, to Galilee, they were told to go to a mountain. Okay, now some weeks have passed, and this is where we're going to pick up this appearance. Okay, it's a few weeks later. They're in this general area, and they're waiting on Jesus to show up. Now keep in mind, right, this is the place where these guys used to live. This is the place where Jesus first interacted with Peter and the sons of Zebedee. This is where this happened, right? This is where they used to, to, to hang out. This is where they used to work. This is where they used to live. This is where their roots were. And when Jesus doesn't show up, they, 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 they're tempted to fall back into who they used to be and what they used to do. And it's led by the self-confident and impatient Peter. And what happens is Peter decides he's tired of waiting on Jesus. He's got stuff to do. I don't know where Jesus is, but I know what I used to do. I used to fish. I'm not going to wait around here any longer. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. Now, before we jump in, I want to remind you just a second about these 11 guys. Before the resurrection, before the death and crucifixion. Now, these 11 guys were Jesus' students, right? Well, they weren't very good students, right? They weren't exactly AP students looking to get into an Ivy League school. These guys struggled. They were filled with self-doubt. They were more concerned about themselves than they were other people and other stuff. They had a hard time wrestling with Jesus's, understanding Jesus' teaching. They weren't very good at discipling other people. The parables confused them more than the Sudoku puzzle. They just had a hard time picking up what Jesus was laying down. But that was pre-resurrection, right? This is after the resurrection, so we would hope that these 11 would, would have a better success record, 
of following what Jesus asked them to do. And that's where we're going to pick up this story. So look at John, John chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. John chapter 21, 1 to 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Now that's a total of seven of the 11 are in this. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here it is, right? Weeks go by, they don't see Jesus. Peter, the leader, says, you know what? I'm not waiting around any longer. I've got stuff to do. I have skills. This is the, the, the same place I know that I used to walk, that I used to fish. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. See, they were tempted to go back to the life that they used to live. And then after fishing, all night long, it says they turned up nothing. The nets were empty. Now, there's only seven of them. I like to think that the other four are on the mountain waiting for Jesus. But we don't know that. Maybe they just didn't want to fish. But here's what I do know. It's a very sad thing when a believer leads others into disobedience. And that's exactly what Peter does here. Instead of waiting on the Lord, doing what he was asked to do, called to do, Peter gets impatient, goes back to his old self, goes back to his old way of supporting himself, and leads these others into disobedience. And that's what we see here. Now think about this too also. Remember, this was the very same spot. This isn't the first experience that they had with empty nets on this lake. Go back three years when Jesus intercepted their lives on this very same body of water, this very same group of people, probably in the very same boat. They had this interaction when they first met Jesus. Look at Luke, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, on Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, he, now Simon is Peter's original name. Simon means pebble. Peter means rock. So this is the same person. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, 
Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Right? Our nets were empty. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. So Jesus said to them, you aren't going to fish fish anymore. You are going to fish men. You now have a new calling in life. You're going to put down your nets and you are going to follow me. This is the same impatient Peter. Three years later, on the same boat, on the same water, with the same result, working under his own power, he ended up with what? Empty nets. After working all night long, he had nothing. He had nothing. See, he tried to go back to being his old self, doing what he used to do instead of waiting and relying on Jesus as he was told. Now look at verses four and five, back in John chapter 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So remember I said last week, Jesus manifests himself in different ways in these appearances, depending on what the circumstance is. Last week, he manifested himself as a stranger to the road on Galilee because he wanted to talk to them about why he had suffered. In his um, uh, manifestation in the upper room, they, were, they knew, they recognized him when he showed up. They were startled and started interacting with him. Now here again, we see that they do not recognize him standing on the shore. And what I find really interesting about this, think about you're in your own faith journey, right? They don't recognize him, but the calling to them is so compelling that they respond to it without knowing that it was Jesus. And they listen, and they stick their nets into the water, and what do they get? They hit the jackpot, right? They responded in obedience, and they receive the fish that comes out of the water. Then he says to them about, the, about the, uh, the question he asked them as children. 
Now, in the ESV, it's translated children. In the NIV, it says friends. But the Greek word here is paideon. Paideon is the Greek word here, and it, it really means child in training. So it's kind of like saying guys, right? Like, come on, guys. Like Jesus saying, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? You don't have any fish, do you? Like the salt being rubbed in the wound. Jesus knew the answer. He knew that they didn't have any fish. And can you imagine how irritating this comment would be after fishing all night and having the nets empty and then maybe it was taking them back to this experience, what, three years later or three years earlier when Jesus interacted with them and filled their nets. Think about that. You guys don't have any fish working on your own. So take a minute just to stop and survey what's going on. Right? All these guys have interacted with Jesus at this point. They've seen him post-resurrection with their very own eyes. They're told to go to Galilee to wait on a mountain. They take matters into their own hands, trying to provide for themselves. They go out, work all night, work hard, and all they have is nothing. Empty nets. And I'm going to sum up these five verses in five words. It's my first point for today. Is that disobedience produces disappointment and failure. Disobedience produces failure and disappointment. Now think about it. In our own walks, it's hard, it's not hard to fall into that trap, is it? When God asks us to do something, and we, we get tired of waiting on him, and we think that we know better for ourselves, we have better plans for ourselves, we have a better vision for our careers and for our jobs, and we wait and wait and wait, and we just can't wait any longer because we're self-initiated people, right? We're self-starters. We're going to take the bull by the horns, and we're going to take control of our lives, and, and if we're lucky, we ask Jesus to bless our steps and kind of walk along with us in the journey that we're marking out for ourselves. If you've ever been there, let me ask you a question. How did that work out for you? I can tell you from my standpoint, when I did it, it didn't work out well for me. In 2006, I felt God telling me my time was over working for software companies managing sales teams. In fact, I knew deep down inside God was calling me to full-time vocational ministry. And in an amazing ways, God opened up doors for me to go on staff at our home church in Atlanta. And I went on staff to take care of all the business issues inside of the, inside of the church. But soon after I got there, I realized as I got to interact with these ministry leaders, that God opened my eyes to pastoral ministry, helping people um, in their walks and, and teaching and counseling and, and just generally loving on God's 
children. I, couldn't, I wanted involved in children's ministry and outreach with the students, and I couldn't get enough of the ministry side of things as God opened my eyes to what pastoral ministry was. Well, I was so excited about what God was doing in my life, I invited our lead pastor to go to lunch, and I wanted to tell him about this. And we went to this Mexican restaurant in this little strip mall, and I sat and I poured my heart out to him, and it was the most disappointing conversation I ever had in my life. He looked at me and said, you know, you're exactly where you need to be. You need to wait. Now's not the time. I thought to myself, I don't know how to wait. I know what I want to do. I see it. I can feel it. I can touch it. I know what God has for me. And so with very little prayer, and with less patience, I quit. I went into this season where I said I was going to wait on God to open these doors for me. But in this season of waiting, I fell back into what I knew and who I was. Because my phone rang at just the right time from another software company offering me a great job, great position, great income, and they promised me the moon. You wouldn't even have to travel much. Well, I traveled so much to Central and South America that I thought I was on the moon. And I was standing in a hotel room in Sao Paulo, Brazil, looking in the mirror, asking myself, how did you get here? And looking back, there was only one answer. Disobedience. And it led to failure, and it led to disappointment. And that's exactly what we see going on here with these guys. They were told to wait, that Jesus is going to come, that he's going to interact with them. And they took matters into their own hands, went back to what they used to do, and they fell into disobedience, which led to disappointment and failure in what they tried to do. See, how about you? Have you ever been there in that season where you got tired of waiting? I did. See, from a worldly perspective, my net looked full because I had a great income, I had a great position, I worked for a great company, I had stock options. But spiritually speaking, my net was empty because I knew that God was calling me into vocational ministry and I was being disobedient. See, God has made us and calls us to what he has created us for. And I think there's two callings in our life. One is there's a general calling, right? That we are called out of love into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the general calling that we have. And then we have a specific calling in our life that as individuals, God has created us uniquely to serve him in the kingdom with the unique gifts that he has given us. Those two callings. That God has made us in the, the exact specific way in which he needs us to serve him. 
So my question to you is, what has God created you to do? Mary comes from a large family, and two of my sister-in-laws are teachers. They love the Lord, and they can't imagine doing anything but teaching. They love everything about it. They feel God's pleasure when they do it. So my question is to you is, what has God created you to do? Right? You're uniquely positioned in your family, in your home, in your neighborhoods, right? With your passion, with your heart, with the gifting that God's given you to serve him in a unique way. Has God called you to be a, an accountant, a graphic designer, a web designer, a software sales guy, a, a mechanical engineer, a plumber, an electrician? You should be doing what God has created you to do, because let me tell you something, unless you are, you're going to be unsettled for the rest of your life. And if you're not following that calling that he's placed on your heart, you're being disobedient. And disobedience leads to failure and to disappointment. All right, that's the first five verses that we see here. So verse 6 switches gears. We go from disobedience and resultant disappointment to what? To obedience in success and intimacy with Jesus. Look at verse 6. 21 verse 6. It says, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of the fish. Like I said earlier, right, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. They respond to this calling, drop in the nets, and the nets are full. Right? They respond to this calling and the net's full. Now they're doing what Jesus told them to do. It blows my mind that they, that, that they don't even recognize him, but there's something inside of them that they respond to this, and Jesus gives them success when they listen to this call. Now look at verses 7 and 8. That disciple whom Jesus loved, right? That's John, the one who wrote this account. Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped to work and threw himself into the sea. Can you imagine that? I love how Peter responds. I hate to admit this, but I can relate to Peter in more ways than one. Right? He is a shoot, ready, aim kind of person. Peter realizes it's the Lord, like the light bulb goes off. Wait a second. He connects back to what happened in Luke chapter 5 that we read. It's the Lord. John puts everything together. He's so excited. He throws on his tunic. He launches himself into the sea, Sea of Galilee, and starts swimming. We'll see in a second. They're about 100 yards out, fully clothed. And I think at this point in Peter's walk, 
Right? He had, he's the one that betrayed Jesus three times. He now was disobedient in fishing, led these other guys into this disobedience. And he's probably happy that he's just found out at this point. He's broken. He knows he's wrong. He knows what he's, he's doing, what he's not supposed to do, and he can't wait to get to Jesus fast enough. He wants forgiveness. He, he wants restoration. And we're going to see next week that he gets these things. We're going to study that interaction between him and Jesus next time. But let's look what happens here in verses 8 and 9. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with a fish laid on it, uh, with fish laid on it and, um, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So think about that. As they go out, as guilty as all get out, right? These guys get to the land, they're guilty, they stand in front of Jesus. And what's he say to them? Come have breakfast. Come eat. He doesn't say to them, what are you guys doing out there? He doesn't say to them, well, or explain to them how, this is why you didn't recognize me and tell him how he manifests himself. He just says to them, come. Come have breakfast. Come and eat. And look at verse 12, uh, verse 12 and 13. Come, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Think about that, 153 of them. Now, I had the pleasure of being in Israel two years ago, and we went out on the Sea of Galilee, and we stopped, and we ate at this restaurant, and they, their specialty is serving what they call St. Peter's fish. It's the fish that gets caught in, in, in the lake. These fish are, at a minimum, two pounds so Peter himself, 153 fish, that's 300 pounds of fish that these guys have. And it says, although there were so many, the net was not torn. So think about that. That's part of the miracle, right? There's so many fish, the net's not torn. Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. So here he is again in intimacy talking with them, providing for them, right? These are, these are seven grown men, you know, probably youngest or probably late teenagers into their 20s. Right? My son's 13. I know what he eats. Right? These are seven grown men. They see this one fish on the grill. When you go back to the Greek, it says they saw the charcoal, the fire of charcoals with one fish on it. And look at verse 13. It says, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So Jesus took, 
the bread. And the Greek says, and he did the same with the little fish. So going back to the miracle where Jesus fed 5,000 with the fish and the loaves, he fed these seven hungry, tired men with one little fish. He did not use the 153 that they caught. Jesus is telling them, if you do what I ask you to do, I will give you what you need. I am enough for you. I will supply enough for you. I don't need your 153 fish. I don't need your $150,000 a year salary. I don't need your degrees. I am going to give you enough to do what I've asked you to do. And that's a key point, is Jesus always provides what we need to do what he is calling us to do. See, we see Jesus again in this intimacy, in this fellowship, caring for the disciples. We see the compassion that he shows for him, right? This is the creator of the universe prepared a meal for those that were to follow him. So he's investing in them. He's he's communicating with them. He's in intimacy with them. He's in fellowship with them, sitting on the shore. After their disobedience, after they walked away, after they didn't wait, there he is right by their side. And see, Jesus is responding because when they did respond to the call, what did they have? They had success, and then they had intimacy with Jesus. And that's one of our key takeaways is in, in obedience. Right, we have this intimacy and we can expect success. Now this isn't prosperity gospel, right? If I give $10, I'm gonna get $200 back. It's not what this is saying. Because it's our blessings sometimes come in teardrops, don't they? But when we respond to Jesus' call on our lives, regardless of how misaligned that we think it is for our plans, Jesus paves the way. He provides us what we need. And we're going to be successful in the things that he asks us to do. And that's difficult at times. Because many times God's will is different in our lives than what we had hoped. You see, we have to get to a place in our lives where we're willing to wait. We're willing to give up who we used to be. We're willing to give up what we used to do. Because like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. See, when we accept God's general call on our lives, responding out of his love and mercy and grace, God sets us apart. We're all ministers of the gospel to be an instrument for him in his kingdom. And he gives us 
everything we need. He has strategically placed us where we are to live out our faith for his benefit and for his purpose. And we have to get to a point in our lives where we say, God, you can have it all. You can have my family. You can have my life. You can have the old way that I used to be. I am not that anymore. I am yours and you are mine. Please take everything that I am and use it for your purpose. Use it for the advancement of the kingdom. Use it to bring people to yourself because you know better than I do. Help me be patient. Help me listen. Help me be obedient to what you're asking me to do. But we have to get to a place in our spiritual journey where we leave it all to him. See, the macro message last week is, is, is when Jesus leaves, he's telling us, I'm gonna be with you, don't worry. I am gonna be there for you. This week he's saying, but you're not gonna be, I'm just gonna be there for you. I've got stuff for you to do. You are the ones that are gonna carry my message forward. You are the ones that are gonna, I'm gonna use to bring people to myself and I've gifted you and I've equipped you to do it. Now go. So Father, we thank you for your call on our lives, that you have created us uniquely with a purpose, with a plan in serving you. Father, help us to, to, to put our old ways behind us. Not let us fall into being the people that we used to be. Give us the strength and courage to be the people that you have created us to be. Father, help us to give it all to you. Every bit of our life so that your son Jesus can be known and revered and loved and accepted. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this responsibility and we know that we can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we know that that comes through the sacrifice that Jesus made. It's in his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.